Welcome to Transcending Comics, a podcast dedicated to trans representation in comic books, manga, and webtoons, both on panel and behind the scenes. Our guest today is the PRISM and Lambda award-winning writer of the serialized comic, O Human Star, and the graphic novel Across the Field of Starlight, as well as the co-creator of Meal from Iron Circus Comics and The Stand, published through Dead Reckoning. As if their writing credits weren't enough, they also teach comic courses at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. With all that said, I'd like to give a warm welcome to Blue Delaconte. Welcome to the show, Blue. Hi, nice to be talking with you. Great seeing you again. I wanted to invite you on the show today as one of our first guests since Oh Human Star was one of the first trans comics or graphic novels that I ever stumbled across. Uh, I remember finding it when seeing you at C2E2 back in 2022 and Took me a while to finally get the chance to read it, but once I did, I was absolutely in love and had to track down the rest. Thank you. As far as your work goes, uh, could you give the audience your quick con pitch for O Human Star? Yeah, absolutely. So O Human Star is a complete webcomic. I ran it online from 2012 to 2020. It is essentially about an inventor who wakes up one morning to discover that they're now in a robot body and have been dead for 16 years. So now they have to get their life back together. Al Sterling, the inventor in question, wakes up in the far-flung year of 2021. Uh, (laughs) And um, the future that... Al has missed out on is the way I briefly kind of like glibly describe it is if robots uh, development of robot technology was uh, how we had moved on with cell phone technology. Mm. Uh, So it's a little more advanced from what we're used to in some ways, but there is a lot of growing pains in terms of how borderline sapient artificial intelligences are integrated into society. So I have Completed that. I completed it during the pandemic. I've kickstarted three print volumes and I am finding, I'm still finding people who come up to me at conventions, talk to me about their experience reading it. And it's always really, really fun talking about this work. I was really glad to see that it's still available on ohumanstar.com since uh, my copy of volume three went to the old fraternity house I went to in college. So (laughs) yeah, I had to read the last third of the book through that. Yeah, I, I really want to keep the original version online on the website as long as is physically possible. I I don't know. I feel ancient saying this, and I'm really not even what's considered the old guard in terms of you know webcomics creators, but I feel very strongly about having work stay consistently accessible to people because it's very, very easy for digital work to be entirely ephemeral and disappear and only exist in memory. And that bums me out. So I really like having it still be accessible to people, especially something like this. I've had other comic creators tell me that they found that online readership or online webcomic readers rarely overlap much with physical comic readers. So like having your stuff available online, even for free, often doesn't actually impact book sales all that much. Have you found that to be the case, at least with O Human Star? Yeah, I would say so. I have found, at least in personal experience, that people who come to me at a table, for example, at a convention, when they see my work, either they've not heard of it, never heard of it. I give them the pitch. They you know, might be interested. They might pick it up at the show. Maybe they'll find it out online later, in which case, you know, that's still totally fine. I love that. Or there will be people who... More and more often, and again, this makes me feel ancient, people will say, oh, yes, I read this in high school. I read this in college, and I was really fond of it. I would love to have a copy of it. And yeah, the overlap of those two readership demographics isn't the biggest, but in a way, that's kind of fun. And there, I actually, there's this chunk of my readership that had this really special experience with a comic, I think, where they followed it as it was updating in real time. And they read it as it was coming out page by page every week. And once it was over, it was like a big, I guess, community event, like a lot of people, you know, bonded out for that. So I find that really valuable to me as a creator. So I like that part of the experience. And I would never give that up with the intention of like, 
trying to squeeze out a couple more book sales. Now, is that a model you've ever thought about going back to, to retain that same kind of readership? Or is it mostly graphic novels and physical releases first that you're focusing on? That's a good question. That's something I've been thinking about quite a bit over the last couple of years. That's, that is something I would like to do. That is something I've had an idea for a long-term project to do is to have a serialized online comic that is similar to OHS in some ways and formats and different in others. A lot of what's changed is the nature of the internet and also just kind of my own career and life. Graphic novels have exploded a lot as part of the industry. And it's because a lot of savvy editors at imprints and stuff, they paid attention to that webcomics world and they would, you know, reach out to try to invite uh, people to pitch, you know, from the webcomics world and pitch a graphic novel. So I had some success with that. I had a graphic novel come out last year with Random House's graphic novel imprint. And I mean, that's fine. In some ways, that is more money up front than I would expect from a webcomic. But that relationship with the readership is entirely different. You know, I'll be working on something for one or two years or more, and no one will see it but my editor. And I'm not seeing people react to it in real time, which is, you know, you get used to that squirt of dopamine you get when you update a page and you get immediate feedback, right? So that's that's one aspect of it where I don't mind that my career has gone in this direction, but I would like the time flexibility to work on an online project like that again. But also the internet has changed substantially in even the 10 years since I first started working on Oh Human Star. It's it's a little more centralized in terms of, you know, people will less frequently go to a website to catch up on an update if it's not given them to them by a social media website. And even that is like significantly in flux, like this last year or two specifically. So, you know, God only knows what it's going to be like in like a year or two. That's all to say that I would be really curious what that webcomic space is going to be like. And if people can create these longer term multi-year projects and have a sustainable readership. I have some friends who are trying that with some fairly new projects right now, and I've been watching them very closely to see what they do and what seems to be working and not working, because I want to try that myself eventually. Can you tell us a bit about what you've been working on in the two or three years since Oh Human Star finished and what your current release models look like and yeah, yeah what you're writing? Oh, absolutely. So my biggest project, if anyone will have heard of my work at all, and it's not Oh Human Star, then they will have probably seen Across the Field of Startlight from Random House Graphic. That is interesting in that the distribution available to publishers is substantially larger than for individual creators. So many more people have told me they've seen my work in a library, in their school, and, you know, that kind of thing, which is really exciting. So I've had that I've been working on. I've also, well, I guess I can announce this now. They announced it recently. I am currently working on a four-issue run of uh, Ghostbusters comics based on the most recent books, Ghostbusters Afterlife. Yeah, since we talked last, uh, this has come together. Congratulations, (laughs) that's huge. Thank you. Yeah, again, a very different like readership base. You know, it's pretty fun. I get to draw Ernie Hudson and a couple of other people and has its own challenges, but that's been an interesting thing. And then as you mentioned earlier, I am teaching classes at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design, which is a school that has a comics program, like a sequential art Bachelor of Fine Arts program. And that has been really fulfilling and interesting to me and also study income. So, you know, can't complain (laughs) about that. So I'm kind of constantly juggling between four or five things at any given time as a freelance artist and a teacher now. So that is kind of what I am doing to stay afloat. And, you know, some good, some bad, no complaints. Now, heading back to Oh Human Star, one of the things that really stuck out to me from the beginning of the book was that trans themes have been present in cyberpunk and sci-fi android stories for quite a long time now. But I was curious what went into your decision to make the androids 
explicitly trans rather than just a trans allegory in the book. So I love telling this story because in retrospect, I sound really oblivious, but um, Oh Human Star, the basic plot came to me in a dream when I was 21 years old. And at the time I was not out. I had no idea really if I was queer at all. I was, you know, just in college and I read a lot of science fiction. I had started to make comics and was aware of some queer themes in fiction, but I didn't really pay attention to it, you know? So I got this basic, I have the dream journal in my office somewhere where I wrote this out, but it's basically an inventor wakes up, finds out he's in a robot body and has to like find his old partner and sort this all out. Oh, and also there is an android who is whose brain is modeled on his brain and she is a girl. And that was it. And I was invest. I was kind of like picking part this idea. I was kind of playing around with character designs because character development is generally how I generate my stories. And pretty early on, I was like, this seems like there are some like queer characters happening here, some LGBT characters. I should do some research to make sure I'm writing this appropriately as an ally. So I basically just started reading a lot more. I started like engaging more with the GSA at my college at the time. And that just kind of led down a slippery slope of (laughs) realizing that I was queer in one way and then realizing I was queer in several other ways. And I mean, as I just, I just became fascinated with like comics that I read that was doing this in this online space that was fomenting at the time. For context, this was the early 20 teens. This was peak Tumblr. This was a really vibrant space for queer art. I have a uh, slideshow that I show students now about the history of webcomics. And for every year, I will put up comics that started online in that year. In 2012, it's me and it's Nimona. Whoa. Yeah. (laughs) Also like Ava's Demon, like nothing to sneeze at. I I put a, (laughs) I put my comic title in there. And then I have this image that I love using all the time. It's a shelf, I think at like a Nintendo toy store of a bunch of Charmander dolls. And they're all pretty standard Charmander dolls. And then there's one very off model, like ditto masquerading as a Charmander doll. And I was like, this is my imposter syndrome looking at the (laughs) Wikipedia list for web comics in 2012. It's just, it's wild. It was such a wild time to become engaged in that space. And so much of, I think my experience cultivating a readership and kind of figuring out who I was as a comic creator was being fermented in this really specific virtual space. So in a certain way, it's like as the comic was developing and Alistair was exploring his own or their own identity, Mm -hmm. you were kind of on a similar journey on your own. Very much so. Yes, there are. I mean, if you have the paperback versions, you could probably see my pronouns like change from one volume to another volume. A lot of like Al's experience and Brendan's experience, even let alone Sulla's, is substantially different from my own. But there were very clearly things that I was curious about in terms of exploring as a literary device. Like, By then, I'm old enough that I've been online for a substantial period of life and seeing how my identity and artifacts of my identity are still available to find and how much I've changed as a person. And I was just really interested in that idea of old relics of your old identities still being around for people to remember and cross-reference. And I found that was generally interesting. I've see that kind of idea brought up in cyberpunk stories and sci-fi stories. But as you mentioned, like very few of them go full on into the implications for gender and, you know, sexuality and marginalized identities and all of these things in a way that's quite so overt. So I was really pleased to see other people also seemed really interested in that discussion when I was working on OHS that really did stand out to me. Like my girlfriend and I have commiserated on kind of being tired of our characters being coded as trans rather than just being trans. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad to hear how much personal input there was behind that. I am curious in that 
there were certain moments in the book, especially when it would shift to Sola's perspective, that I was like, yes, that moment. I have lived that moment. Like, I mean, I teared up at work a little bit reading the I look beautiful moment when she first wakes up in the new body. Mm-hmm. And I was curious if like, are there any moments from your own life that you felt like you put directly into the comic? And it's okay if you don't want to say specifically what. No, that's a good question. I'm trying to think if there are any specific. You know what? It's it's strange, right? Because so much of me writing Alan Brendan's dynamic was me trying to realistically write a conversation in this like tension between two much older people than I was at the time, like people in their like 30s and 40s. And it's interesting to see how much I've kind of aged into some of those things in some ways. I guess I feel like in some ways at the time, I was really similar to Brendan in that kind of regardless of whatever my deal was, I was a really precocious kid. People generally liked me. And, you know, I was like extroverted enough that people kind of just like rolled along with whatever I did. So I feel like some of my worst habits probably found their way into Brendan and that kind of like person that he is. So it was really... I don't know. It was it was interesting to be reflective and like write this man maturing and kind of becoming a little more thoughtful or a little more like considerate of other people and what they are experiencing in a way. But yeah, I in terms of like being a young person, I feel like Brendan is the closest and I feel like I am drawing from my experiences with other people kind of trying to figure out who Al was and who Solo was and all the others as well. Since this was something much more new to you and something you had to research to make sure you were properly representing the trans community in the book, mm-hmm. I'm curious what some of your main influences for Oh Human Star were, both with the trans themes and with just the science fiction themes in general. Yeah, definitely. Um, let me start with the second part with science fiction, because that's something where I feel like I had a longer time to taken stuff and and adopt stuff. As a reader, I am really drawn to specific artists' work and certain artists' work. Uh, I am a huge fan of the book Solaris by Stanislaw Lem. Are you familiar with his work? I'm not. He is, ooh, let me make sure I get the nationality correctly. He is like a Soviet era writer and, you know, he's pretty prolific. He wrote quite a bit. Solaris is probably his most well-known book in the West. He's Polish. And it is about, it's a very interesting book. It is about a space station, like floating above the ocean of a planet that appears to be all ocean, but it's like this weird biomass, like sentient seeming organism that appears to be an ocean. And anybody who is stationed on this floating installation, they are inevitably visited by ghosts or apparitions of people in their lives. So it follows this guy who comes onto the installation and he is visited by his dead wife and who believes she is his dead wife. Like she is really convinced of her identity, but their relationship is very much strained by this bizarre reaction they have. And I was really, really intrigued by how Lem wrote this attempt at communication between something that's like utterly alien, utterly like you can't fully understand it. Mm -hmm. And this person who doesn't realize that she is an extension of this like alien thing. I thought that was great. And it's written in a very like melancholy, very slow way that really stood out to me. And another work that I think also scratches that itch is a manga called Pluto by Naoki Urasawa. And that is an interesting one because that's an adaptation of an Astro Boy story by Osamu Tezuka. But it's kind of an adaptation of Astro Boy the way Sandman is an adaptation of DC Comics. Like Mm. it takes a basic cast of characters and fleshes them out, gives it a completely different tone. And that is about a robot detective solving a murder mystery of the other most powerful robots in the world. And it's also got a really great melancholic slow paced tone. And I think those in my mind really mixed in my head. And I also, I, I, I really enjoyed Ghost in the Shell, like the film and the series when I was 
in high school, Bato from Ghost in the Shell is still a big fictional crush of mine. <laughs> I'll admit that. And yeah, that's also something that is very much interested in that idea of like, when do you stop being you? Like what constitutes being you? How separated do you have to be from the original version of yourself to still be considered yourself? Like that kind of stuff I think about all the time. And that also definitely plays with gender quite a bit. So I'll put a pin in that. So that's kind of the tone, the range of media, the like questions that I've found myself really thinking about when it came to OHS specifically. In terms of my like my queer studies education, I'm trying to remember what I was reading at the time. I started reading a lot of queer comics and not all of them were like, you know, a lot of them were smut comics. (laughs) But I, I just started like just looking up anything I could find, just like people who were making work about their own experiences or just writing about their own experiences, you know, on blogs, on Twitter, just kind of like to get the sense of the language and how people were changing over the time. Because this is the other thing about webcomics too, specifically, is that there are a lot of foundational texts that are made by trans women. Like this is just one of those fields where trans women make up a lot of the really like interesting people making interesting stuff in this field. You know, I feel like online that's the case quite a bit of the time. Or, you know, technology in general. Like, look at... We did invent the Matrix, so... Yeah, I mean, (laughs) there's that. I mean, there's, like, if you think about, like, techno music and, like, Mm. you know, that kind of thing. Like, there, I just kind of absorbed everything. Mm. Probably both the good and the bad. But that at least gave me a foundation for stuff that I was not witnessing in real life just yet. And then after school, I just moved to a city that... I live in Minneapolis currently that has a pretty robust queer community. And I just, I just read, I just read a lot. So I, I feel like I really went a lot of directions on that, that question, but I was basically absorbing everything and trying to synthesize it into something coherent. I think you did that quite well, especially in the use of Sola as a character. Like, honestly, my favorite moments from the book were usually from her perspective, mm-hmm. which I could tell was used really selectively throughout the series. Looking back, is that something you wish you could have explored more or whatever want to like return to to expand on further? Yeah, I have a really interesting look back at Oh Human Star now because on the whole, I'm really satisfied with the fact that I was able to complete the project at all. Those of you who are familiar with reading webcomics as a hobby is that there's a lot of bittersweetness with getting really attached to something that, you know, will just go on hiatus forever and never come back, you know, because that's just the nature of the medium. It's a comic you start when you're 22 is not necessarily something you want to continue making when you're 32. You just have changed as a person. So you'll put something down. So the fact that I was able to reach a conclusion with O Human Star that I was pleased with is something I'm still really proud of. The other aspect of it too is that my relationship with technology and my opinion of technology has, I feel like, really radically changed in the last five years, especially, but just over the course of working on OHS. I read a lot of Wired magazine and I read a lot of like, I don't know, there's a lot of like, I feel like techno optimism that is very of a era in the early 2000s where I really liked the idea of robots and the idea of artificial intelligence and like all things we can do. And now I feel like I have to be much more critical or thoughtful of what that realistically is starting to turn into. There's a there's an expression I feel like I've started using all the time, which is the torment nexus. Have you uh, heard of this expression? I have not. This is a, I think it started as a tweet. There is a, a joke that a like Silicon Valley type will in, roll out something known as the torment nexus. And it's based on, you know, a fictional like a fake author's seminal work. Don't invent the torment nexus. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm literally in the middle of reading Snow Crash, which is a mm. very foundational cyberpunk text. And when I realized that the virtual world uh, it's exploring is called the fucking metaverse, like I had to put the book down <laughs> and walk away for five minutes. <laughs> like it's, you know, so it's just, 
it might just be a matter of be, me becoming older and having more of a nuanced perspective of technology. But I feel like if I were to come back to OHS, and I do think about it because I am still very fond of the characters, and I would love to see what a world looks like for them five years later, 50 years later, a millennia later, mm. I would have to really think about what that can look like for good or for ill. Yeah, I think that ties well into the next question I had written down here of since this wrapped in 2020 and in the three years since then, the discourse around AI has drastically changed. Yes. I'm curious how you feel about the modern world of AI and how that would impact the story if it had been written today or if it was still ongoing. Something that I realized I had a really strong opinion about because of working on O Human Star is that idea of having your image preserved and co-opted and used for commercial means, either with your consent or without it. The fact that Bruce Willis can have like a deep fake of his face in a Russian commercial, or people can write brand new novels like in the style of a particular author using ChatGPT kind of feels like my torment nexus. Like I feel like this, like this is something that I talked about in O Human Star. You know, there's some very substantial implications of that. And I think that there is going to be a really serious cultural conversation we're going to have to have once a lot of people like writers or public personalities or thinkers when they are not around anymore but work is still coming out that is ascribed to their brand or their likeness or their style of thinking i think we'll have to really think about that and i don't think we're there yet it, like it's just it's been kind of morbidly fascinating watching to see how it's developed over the last several years. And I don't think this is like something that, oh, Human Star has a monopoly on by any means. There's a movie that came out, I don't know, maybe like 10 years ago, maybe only five, called The Congress, that is kind of also about this too. It's about Robin Wright, who is the actress from The Princess Bride, most famously, but she plays a version of herself. She plays Robin Wright, who decides to have her likeness scanned so that movies can be made using that artificial likeness for eternity. And I feel like that also grapples with that very thoughtfully. I'm just kind of curious to see how the culture at large will respond to that or maybe re react against it eventually. Oh, Human Star feels kind of like a best case scenario for that situation since Alistair, spoilers to those who haven't read it, but she gets the chance to transition toward the end. I'm curious if that was... For one, if that was some of your optimism trying to channel that into the story of like the idea that even these likenesses can change. And I I'm also curious about the decision not to show what post-transition Al looks like. Okay, so let me I'll do that second one first again, because that's something that I chose very deliberately when I didn't think, you know, I'm still not entirely sure what, you know, whether I'll ever return to those characters again. I have like a image in my mind of what post-transition Al looks like, sounds like, but it felt more important to me for readers, especially so many of my readers, you know, came to me, told me that they were trans, that they connected with this as trans people, often as trans women, that I kind of wanted an image that they have the power to form as well and, you know, have a relationship with. And I feel like that also kind of represents that the kind of transition that Al is having is there's a lot of freedom in it and a lot of choice. And what I think, tying it back into the first part of the question, what I think Al has to grapple with is the fact that she can't just coast on what is known about her or what is expected of her or images of her that are in the world forever. Like she's done that and realizing that she's expected to do it again is miserable to her. So I think she has to make that choice to transition and exercise some control over that. But I don't think that means that she's free of that 
those relics of herself forever. I think they're always just going to be there the way any of us who identify as trans or even as just a fundamentally changed person in some way will have to, you know, see old photos of themselves or old video or even read their own like terrible writing from like, you know, high school or college. I think that there's a thing that Al says that I still think about often because I find that this has kind of popped up in my writing other characters. Al has a line where she talks about how there is no real her and everything kind of comes down to her actions, like how she behaves and how she treats others. That's the closest to the real her that she perceives. And I think that is a coping mechanism for Al, but I feel like that's also a way that a lot of people interact with the world is what is your identity really and can you just be boiled down to the actions that you perform in the world or your, you know, imprint on the world? I feel like that's that moment says a lot about Al as a person, I think. So when Al refers to themselves as a mistake towards the end of the series, do you see that as a way of Al referring to the way they live their life or more of a commentary on the decisions and actions they made? That's a good way of framing that. I feel like, well, so I i mean, I can tell you, I guess as the writer, that that has been a word that has been pointed at Al as like, Al is a mistake. But also there is a lot of like making of mistakes and, you know, your actions being mistakes and just everything is just like, you know, if you are not a person, you are just like an aggregate product of actions yeah, it can be very easy to put yourself in a box as just like a series of mistakes. And all of your potential actions can be framed as like potential mistakes. And that can be a really paralyzing way to live. <laughs> like that is, again, I think of something that I feel like I explore in fiction beyond O Human Star 2 is that idea of like being paralyzed by choice and possibility. Speaking of decisions, for my listeners that haven't had a chance to check out the series yet, do you feel like there's an ideal form of reading this comic? Like, I found it really interesting to switch to the site halfway through and getting to see your little notes with each page. Mm -hmm. But getting those side stories all in one place in the graphic novel was, I mean, those were some of the best moments of the series for me. That's really tough for me to say because I think that so the thing that to remember you know for people who read web comics now you know as opposed to like 10 years ago is that there are a lot of people reading web comics now that are in what I would call the webtoon format where it's a scroll and actually a couple of years ago I uploaded the entirety of oh oh human star like as a mirror on webtoon so you kind of like will read chunks of the comic as a scroll just so it has another place to live and discover new things but that's not how the pages were designed originally it was very much a classic like page flip thing I designed like the action of the page that it kind of like ends on like a hanger so that you kind of are intrigued and you want to continue on you know it's classic like page design like theory I suppose if anything has a theory I always envisioned it as purely as a webcomic first, because I didn't really have any expectations that it would ever truly be a book. It really only felt feasible once I expanded my sphere of friends and colleagues who were successfully in kickstarting stuff. I found that people have really enjoyed reading it as a book and having it in their hand. And especially it's easier in a way to flip back to pages or panels that you would read already once and didn't really make much of a particular word choice or particular image at the time. But then that image gets much more significance based on something you learn later. I have a lot of people who contact me about that, especially in comments on the website going like, oh my God, that on my second read through, that moment means something else, which is great. I love that because that's what I intended. I also though, again, there's this like, subsection of my readers that will never, you know, expand and only decrease where they read it as it was serialized week by week. And at some point you get to the end of the queue, like you can't read anymore until the next page comes out next week. And that 
is still a way I also really value reading comics. There is a comic I will probably recommend in a little bit later where it is that experience for me right now is going to the website, seeing if there's more pages because I have to read another page. So I'm glad that Oh Human Star is flexible enough in its format that it can accommodate those different styles of reading. And I don't really want to prioritize one or the other. It's just, it's got its different strengths, I suppose. Now, I guess behind the scenes, I'm curious about the really dominant new forms of web comics I'm seeing. Webtoon being one with obviously a lot of possibility by it completely changing the way page flow works. Mm -hmm. But as far as release models go, it's only been since researching creators for this podcast that I've noticed how many web comic creators are using itch.io to release their comics or have like a price for a particular collection of their work. Mm -hmm. I'm curious as someone who's had to sort of redistribute all your content on these new platforms as they grow, what you find to be like the strengths of say using itch.io or what you say like about Webtoon as a creator. Yeah, I definitely can because this is something that I like talk about with students frequently as well. The thing about Webtoon is that it is coming from the reading tradition of South Korea. And that reader base is enormous. Like it's frankly enormous compared to like the English language reading world. So there is this like really robust readership and like style of formatting that, you know, there's expectations for very frequent updates. There's usually like, it's really digestible. Like it's easy to read and access on, you know, your phone or a mobile device. So, you know, there are people who develop really like devout followings that way. There is now an expectation for very frequent updates, which means a lot of these times these works are made by basically a production team and stuff like that can slowly devolve into sweatshop levels of like making work. That's not great. And it's a little less indie often than we can think of for a web comic space. So, but you know, I know some people who do really well with that webtoon format. And you do kind of have to think about the flow of a comic differently in ways that some people really innovate with. Itch, itch.io, which for those of you who aren't familiar, it is initially, I think it started as a game distribution website, like indie games, though there's lots of like text and oftentimes even programs or fonts or things like that, font packs. Um, For the uh, fellow like early 2000s and 20-teens people mm -hmm. uh imagine this is like where all of the flash games went or like the current equivalent of that yeah it kind of has that like new grounds indie energy the thing that is currently really appealing for itch is that it is one of the few distribution sites that has not brought the hammer down on sexual like read queer work something that has been increasingly frustrating about making visual work online is that there are far fewer places to share not safe for work content. And itch, at least for now, has not cracked down on that. So very frequently, this is a really good place to find graphic novels, graphic novellas, PDFs of any kind that will have not safe for work, mature content. And you can find like really great work on there. Otava Hecula, who's like one of my favorite cartoonists right now, all of his graphic novels and novellas are being basically uploaded to Itch when he puts a new one out. But also like some really great games and lots of things that aren't entirely games, aren't entirely visual novels, aren't entirely comics. A really old one that I think is on Itch. Well, let me check that. But yeah, lots of people who are kind of in this like in-between space of work you can find on itch. Aha, I was right. Gigi DG, who webcomic readers might know as the creator of Cucumber Quest, did an amazing piece called Lady of the Shard that is, I think, originally on itch. And it is kind of like a cross of a visual novel, a comic, a like you navigate it like you might like an old school like visual novel. And it is just like a beautiful piece. Pretty gay. <laughs> so yeah there's there were people who will kind of go the pdf route they'll work on something quietly for six months and then drop it on itch almost like you were releasing a digital book 
There's still people who host things on their own websites. Like they will have a really robust indie website where everything lives. And that is great if you want everything to kind of be in within your power so that if for some reason a social media website rots or collapses, you don't lose access to all of your files. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think if there are any other like big platforms. Some people still upload things on Twitter. Like they'll just release things in big giant threads on Twitter. And, you know, that's great for discoverability too, but also very precarious in terms of long-term lifespan of finding that stuff. So lots of people I know mirror their work any way they can. Awesome. I think that really thoroughly answers that question. Can you tell I'm like regurged these in topics over and over again in the classroom? No, that does kind of help lead me to, uh, I'm curious about your classroom work. Since you have a well-established history with webcomics, how do you balance the inclusion of webcomics in your curriculum in comparison to traditional American print comics, manga, and other forms of comic media? That's a good question. With MCAT specifically, first of all, I think that the MCAT program is really strong. It's one of the longer-lived comics arts programs, I think, that are around in the States. But it's still, you know, fairly small. There are only a handful of full-time teachers and then a handful of adjuncts, of which I am one. And so frequently, the teachers will kind of be coming from a variety of backgrounds. I have a colleague who worked for Vertigo for a long time, or I have, you know, a colleague who is from the zine world and makes like Xerox zines and handed them out at like punk venues, that kind of thing. And then... I kind of have the webcomic experience. I also am not exclusively, but I would say I grew up during the manga boom of the 2000s. So I kind of have more hands-on manga experience than a couple of other my colleagues. So it's mostly just a matter of all of us trying to share knowledge and meet the students where they're at as best as we can, given what we're able to accomplish. So with webcomics... Well, so I'll start by saying the classes that I teach, I teach an introduction level class for students who are going to be entering that program just to get everyone on the same page in terms of skills. I teach a professional practice class for upperclassmen who are getting ready to graduate and enter the the world. And that is very interesting in terms of staying up to date with What websites are falling apart at any given moment? Or what is the moral panic in the industry at this given Mm -hmm. moment? You know, that kind of thing. But I have been invited in a colleague's history of comics class to talk about the history of webcomics to the best of my knowledge. And the thing that's interesting about that is that I'm 33. Most of the students are in their very early 20s. And many of these students come in without a lot of shared reference points for comics period. Most of them have seen a Marvel movie. Maybe half of them have read My Hero or something like that. Some of them will have read Webtoon, but there's not a lot of like shared pop culture points in comics. Otherwise, so I'm doing a lot of groundwork laying. And then sometimes like because they're 20, the and the internet they grew up in is fundamentally different from the internet I grew up in. I have to explain a lot of concepts that might seem fundamental to someone older, like an RSS feed or a web ring or just even the idea of like banner ads and like how for a while the entire industry of web comics people made money based on banner ads because that was how the internet worked at the time and kind of describing these things that are already defunct in order to explain where things come from. Or, you know, the wildest thing is many people in webcomics go on to do other stuff. So there are a lot of names they recognize going like, wait, who? what is this person? What is, don't they work on a cartoon? Didn't they like write this famous creepypasta? Like, what is this like work <laughs> that they made? I mean, the I tell the story, I always like make heads, eyes pop out when I tell the story, but like I read a live journal comic that I was really fond of in college. And it was just updated sporadically by this art student named Rebecca Sugar. And everyone was like, what? Rebecca Sugar? (laughs) I was like, yeah, like people come from all over the place and they have really fundamental impacts on pop culture. A lot of them have seen the image of the 
dog in the house on fire saying this is fine, but they have no idea who Casey Green is or his comics or what he did and kind of talking about his role in web comics is really interesting. So yeah, I I really enjoy it. I find I kind of enjoy telling stories and trying to put things in context because otherwise things can completely slip away and it's hard to kind of see the this like community of people as continuum where people come in, people leave, they make weird stuff, they make weird stuff as a comment to other weird stuff. <laughs> Now, just a couple final questions here, more to serve my own general interests. Like my other podcast, Giant Size Violence, is dedicated to tokusatsu and kaiju comics and other media. And honestly, I only found out this morning that you've actually written a uh, Pacific Rim fan comic. I sure did. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I went down memory lane with this recently because it was the 10th anniversary of the film's premiere. And again, in the golden days of Tumblr, I ended up making a lot of friends who I'm still like friends with, who I'm like professional colleagues with, who we were all in the soup together, as it were. And the one that you're referring to is one that I made five years ago with my friend Kiku Hughes. She made a really amazing, devastating graphic novel called Displacement a couple of years ago that I strongly recommend. I also worked on a, <laughs> a single issue uh, for uh, the Godzilla Rival series with IDW with Ferriwind, who worked in the animation industry in uh, like Asia and also just drew some of the best kaiju I've ever seen. So I reached out to them on Discord and was like, hey, I need an artist for this job I got hired for. Do you want to like get back on the giant monster train? And they were like, yes, absolutely. So yeah, I, I still have a lot of really good friends from that time. Yeah, your Godzilla Rivals issue, uh, what monsters did you get to work with? I chose, um, so we were given a list of what Toho was like letting people borrow. I chose Mothra and I chose Titanosaurus. I loved Mothra and I felt like Titanosaurus he could do interesting things with. With something Mm. like that, you know, with any large like franchise manager, you know, Toho had some like specific things like you can do this, you can't do this. Like this is off limits. We'll let you do this. So it was kind of fun working with the editor to figure out what was acceptable, what wasn't. And I wrote this script. I gave it to Ferio. And like months later, they turned in just like the most like eye-popping inks and colors I'd ever seen. It was just a blast. In a previous interview, I think it was on like the Creonators podcast or uh, one of the comic book Herald associated ones. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned wanting to work on some kind of kaiju web comic or like multimedia project yes is that still something that you have in the works or want to do things with or more back burner idea for the moment it is i mean this is the thing that i would like to have be an online comic because i have a very strong idea of what i would like to do but it would take more time i tried to get it started this year I'm working on a, actually, I'm just finishing up a piece for the Shortbox Comics Fair, which is a digital, like, fair for debuting new work. And I wanted to get a piece started in that world I was envisioning for that. And then I ran out of time. So I had to table my notes for that. I started up a new idea. I was like, okay, this is a little less ambitious. I can work on this. And then I ran out of time for that too. So I tabled that one. And now I have like a even more bite-sized idea that I am successfully finishing. So I do have it. I do want to work on it. And it's just a matter of making sure I have the time and the resources I need to pull off what I'm envisioning. But I promise I am. I do want to work on it. Now, I just have one last fun little question of the week for you here uh, Mm -hmm. to kind of tie in with the themes of the comic. But if you could go on a date with one fictional android, who would it be and why? Oh, I mean, I feel like I already, you know, let slip. I feel like it's got to be Bato from Ghost in the Mm, Shell. He's just he's a hunk. He's a real hunky guy. I recently rewatched the original Ghost in the Shell. Criterion is doing like an AI themed selection of movies this month. 
and one of them's mm-hmm. Ghost in the Shell. And I had forgotten, there's a great sequence where the major who is like the feminine cyborg who's apprehending perps, she has like an invisible wavelength thing that makes her invisible. She beats this guy up. She, you know, becomes invisible, fully nude, of course. And then her partner, Bato, comes up there just chatting about what to do next. And he very quietly just puts his jacket on her. And I was just like, oh my God, this explains so much (laughs) about (laughs) character dynamics I enjoy. Uh, Yeah, Mm. he's, he's he's a catch. All right. Well, I just want to say thank you again, Glue, for taking the time to come on the show. My pleasure. Where can my listeners find you and what should we be on the lookout for from you in the uh, coming months? You can always Google my name, Blue Deliquanti. That's D-E-L-L-I-Q-U-A-N-T-I. I have a website. I, for the moment, still have a Twitter. I'm on Tumblr pretty actively and I'm in a smattering of other things, but maybe with a little less frequency. But you can always find the most recent updates about what I am working on through either my Patreon, uh, which is under my name, or my personal professional website. Excellent. Well, always great to have you. And yeah, I'll be keeping an eye on your work. Definitely going to be ordering across the field of Starlight and hope to see you again in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transcending Comics. If any listeners have requests or recommendations for comics or creators you'd like us to cover in the future, you can send them our way on social media. You can find us on the Transcending Comics Instagram and Facebook page, on Twitter as at Transcending Comics, or email us at transcendingcomics at gmail.com. We'd like to thank you for giving our podcast a chance and give a special shout out to Ray Day Parade for designing our logo. Our music this week is by Liara Kaylee Sai. Our opening song was our untitled sample from March 2021, and our outro is Tessellation Matrix. You can check out more of her music on SoundCloud. Links in the episode description. Join us again next week as we continue transcending boundaries and exploring the colorful world of trans, non-binary, and genderqueer representation in comic books of all kinds. As the curtains fall on this episode of Transcending Comics, remember that comics have the power to inspire change in countless worlds, including our own. Keep reading, keep writing, and keep transcending.